Good morning. Can you turn me down just a little bit? No chuckles at all? Come on. Smile. Smiles. Such an introverted church, I guess I can just hope for smiles. All right, so today is part six. What series are we in? Genesis. Genesis. I figured it's going to be one of those mornings. We are in Revelation. Part one was an introduction. Parts two, three, and four. We carefully come through the book looking to see all that it says about Jesus. Last week in part five, we occupied ourselves with the theme of persecution, either exhortations to endure or the many promises of reward uh, for those who do or examples of those who endured. Um, the book of Revelation, of course, is filled with these. Today, we will be looking at um, another subject that dominates its pages. This is an obvious subject, and that would be God himself, his character, attributes, and his various divine acts. And what we find is, of course, consistent with the rest of Scripture. But at the same time, uh, certain truths about him are highlighted in Revelation that don't always come to mind um, when we think of God. And so in this, Revelation does make a significant contribution. Uh, the powerful and intense drama that unfolds in it is quite effective in bringing these to our attention. Sometimes they are front and center, you know, direct and explicit. Um, but uh, most of the time, they're kind of like subtle and implied. Um, but unfortunately, as I have talked about before, a lot of these sorts of things, including this subject, go, often goes unnoticed because, again, we get distracted with all the other stuff. We're always, there's always this temptation to take uh, what we're reading in Revelation and try to match it to some current event, and then it becomes a whole thing in itself. So unlike the previous sermons, our approach today is going to be a little bit different. Instead of moving from chapter to chapter, stopping to look at every verse that mentions something about God, we'll simply focus on five major truths about him that are quite significant in this book. And this should prove to be pretty efficient, and therefore, good news, today's sermon will be a little shorter than the previous ones, a whole two minutes and 20 seconds shorter, right? Amen. <laughs> I figured that would come from Ben. I was just it's part of the script. All right. So hopefully by now you have a basic understanding of the way Revelation is outlined, how things unfold. I'm assuming, if nothing else, that you've just have naturally picked some of this up during the previous sermons, because today is part six. A very bare-bones structure that is pretty easy to remember looks something like this. We begin, of course, with an introduction, then seven messages to seven churches. After this, the scene in the throne room of heaven. Hopefully you're connecting all these dots. Then... I've got the, the big section in the middle, all the judgments that come from the opening of the seven seals, followed by all the judgments that come from the sounding of the seven trumpets, followed by all the judgments that come from the pouring out of the seven bowls of wrath. And again, all these judgments make up the bulk of the, of the book. And as we get toward the end, then we have the condemnation of, of um, the great prostitute, of the two beasts, uh, rulers who followed the beast, the devil, and finally the wicked. And Revelation then, of course, concludes with the promise and the description of the new creation. So a visual representation um, of this would have a line starting off maybe like kind of rather straight and flat, and then taking a very sharp downward 
turn until we get to the last three chapters of the book, where it then takes a very sharp upward turn to infinity and beyond, all right? So in this series, I might refer to something um, like the seven trumpets, for instance. And when I do, I'm just going to assume that you have a general idea of what I'm referring to and where it fits into the book. Okay, fair enough. By now, I think you would kind of have that even from your own reading of the book over the years. It's not essential that you know uh, where they are found. It's not essential that you remember what each of those seven judgments are. For our purposes, just remember that those seven trumpets involve a series of judgments from God and are found in the middle of the book during a time period that is rather dark and dreadful. That's what will be helpful here. Another example would be the worship scene in heaven, which will come up today. I'll assume that you know that it's near the beginning of the book, before all of those judgments, and actually sets the stage for what takes place in the chapters to follow. All right? Sound reasonable? Okay, so making a point to remember these sorts of things and more will be quite helpful, especially uh, when we pass out the final exam, which we will do at the picnic this year. So, huh? Uh, maybe, I don't know. Just kidding about the picnic, but we actually did do that one year, and people still hold resentment toward me, toward me because of it. So, no, you do have to study, because I may still do the exam. All right. So as stated a number of times, one of my goals in this series is to help us better appreciate this overlooked book. Typically, as I mentioned before, it is overlooked because it tends to be pretty dark and scary and confusing, difficult to understand. And while all that may be true, there are nonetheless some really great stuff that makes it quite rich and I would say even captivating, uh, which of course I've been trying to draw our attention to. So I just have to ask, <laughs> Since I've started this series back in April, has anyone been inspired to read through the book from beginning to end in the last two months? Or to start reading it. Oh, oh, I'll even accept that. Okay. All right. A few people. Okay. All right. Good. Um, not a strong vote of confidence, but nonetheless, <laughs> a few people have. All right, so let's turn to chapter one. Hopefully you have your Bibles, you have a phone or something here by which you can follow along. Um, the first passage we want to look at is found in the section marked in the heading Greetings and Doxology or something similar there in chapter one. We've already spent some time in that section in a previous sermon, and our verse here, verse eight, should sound somewhat familiar. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So we have in this verse, short verse, actually three titles, three designations, or three ways that God identifies himself to the reader. And each one is quite significant. They each represent uh, significant truths about him that run through the whole book. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and the Lord God Almighty. So let's just take a quick look at each of these. Alpha and Omega, as we all know, are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Later, in chapter 1, near the end of the book, God, when he speaks again, he says the same thing. I am the Alpha and the Omega, but adds to it, I am the beginning and the end. Uh, which basically is saying the same thing in a different way, but the parallelism gives it an added punch there. So essentially in this, God is saying that he is the first and the last and everything in between. And in this context, 
the point is pretty clear. He is the absolute Lord over history. That's how the book begins. Uh, the one who created the world will end the world and is in control of it right now. The title stresses his timeless sovereignty. And again, this truth about God contributes to one of the main purposes of the book itself. And that would be, as we talked about last week, that of assuring Christians facing persecution for their faith. Even as God precedes and originates all things as their creator, so will he bring about all things to their final fulfillment. Therefore, do not lose heart. This particular point is made again later in the book, quite emphatically, there again in, in chapter 21, where the new creation is being described. There in verse 6, God speaks again, saying, it is done. Very significant words, it is done, and then says immediately, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So God is both the origin and the goal of all history. He has the first and last word in this creation and the first and last word in the new creation. As the Alpha, nothing came before him. As the Omega, nothing will outlast him. To the readers who are facing opposition for their faith, they are, then there, they are therefore assured that God has a plan, that this plan is greater than anything they can imagine, and it is a plan worth all the grief and hardship that they were going through. So again, do not lose heart. Alpha and Omega is somewhat similar to another description used of God in this book, which is the one who lives forever and ever, which we see occurring often. So this leads us then to the second title in verse 8, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Those are really classy, cool words, I think. Um, essentially, he is the eternal God who unites past, present, and the future in himself. This particular designation, or some form of it, is found five times in the book of Revelation. Earlier in, chapter, earlier in verse 4, here in verse 8, later in chapter 4, in the perpetual worship there in the throne room of God, in chapter 11, in another worship scene in God's throne room, and in chapter 16, in yet another worship scene where God is being praised for his righteous judgments. The one who is would remind us of the answer God gave Moses when asked, who are you? To this, as you will remember, God replied, I am. The one who was speaks of the fact that he is eternal. He never began to be, but always has been. The one who is coming, well, that's worded in somewhat of an interesting way. It is not the one who will be to convey the surety of his future existence, but rather the one who is coming which emphasizes the surety of him carrying out his future plans. And again, this fits perfectly, um, fits in perfectly in this general theme of Revelation. Readers suffering for the faith need to be encouraged. God is not asleep. He's not dead. He's not indifferent. A day of reckoning is on his calendar. It will happen. The forces of evil will be defeated, and his kingdom will be established for those who are his. In this regard, he is coming. However, <clears throat> as we all know, sometimes the struggle we face isn't really assurance about the future. We know that eventually God will fulfill his plans and keep his promises. We don't always struggle with doubts about that. Sometimes we do, but not always. Most of the time, if we were to speak candidly about this, the struggle is the present. 
At the moment, it looks like things are out of control and that God has overlooked something or missed something or worse yet, that he doesn't care. But again, God is not just the one who is to come, but also the one who is. He is ruling over our current circumstances. Nothing is outside his attention. He is sovereign in what happened long ago and what will happen far off in the future and is and what is happening now. Yes, the persecution is rough. Things will get worse, but don't lose heart. That's the message here. The third title here in verse 8 that God identifies himself by is the Almighty or the Lord God Almighty, which is found at least nine times in this book. And I learned that this description is used here grammatically, actually means God shows he is Lord of all by exercising his mighty power. God shows that he is Lord of all by exercising his mighty power. Lord God Almighty is, of course, a familiar name that is used throughout Scripture, and generally it conjures up the idea of omnipotence. And that, of course, would be accurate, but in this book, it seems that the intention is to convey something a bit more specific than that, namely, God's control over all things. There's more here than just the fact that he is all-powerful, but that he is actually exercising his power on behalf of his people. He has a certain future planned for them, and he is, even now, engaged in the action of bringing about all things to that end. This truth is so encouraging, so profound to the reader, that the natural response to it is his worship. Of the various times this title of the various times that this title is used of God in Revelation, almost half of them are found in the various worship scenes contained in this book. So as we see, each of these three titles or descriptions that God uses to identify himself, they share similar meanings and yet at the same time convey some differences. And this will be true of the next one uh, that we'll be looking at. We're going to spend some time on it, and it comes from chapter 4. And it's very similar in meaning, but yet different. The next designation of God is actually the most common way that he is referred to in Revelation. And it, actually, and it consists of a striking image, something that we are to visualize. And it is this, the one who sits on the throne. If there is a description of God that the book of Revelation would be known for, it would be this one. And it starts here in chapter 4 from this majestic worship scene in the throne room of heaven that extends into chapter 5. And hopefully you will recall that, uh, we, that we worked through chapter 5 verse by verse a few weeks ago where we looked at all the drama surrounding the lamb taking the scroll, remember that, uh, which then sets off a whole chain of events that are described in the chapters that follow chapter 5. Chapter 5 is a major turning point in this book, and the whole focus is on the lamb that was slain. In chapter 4, that we're about to look at, the focus is on, is on the one who sits on the throne. Both chapters belong together as a unit, and they give us a behind-the-scenes explanation for the events that follow, including all of the judgments. We'll talk more about that later. And so today we're going to turn our attention to the first half of that worship scene there in chapter 4 and just work through this. Though the throne of God has been referred to in previous chapters, it is here in chapter 4 where this image is developed 
uh, and uh, where it, it's given a certain significance that the rest of the book will draw upon. Okay, everyone following me so far? All right, good. So, verse 1, <clears throat> let's work through it. John writes, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me was like a trumpet, or speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. So the throne on which God sits is one of the central symbols of the whole book. It is worth noting that this scene here depicted shares many common features with two other similar scenes in Scripture, one from Isaiah 6, the other from Ezekiel 1. The similarities give John's vision of the throne room here a certain degree of authenticity. In other words, John really is seeing something. He's not just making this stuff up and putting it in the, like in the form of a vision. He actually is seeing something here. The throne, of course, represents God's seat of authority, his, his universal power. It is from his throne that he not only directs the affairs of the universe, but also judges all matters in his perfect wisdom and perfect justice. As his readers contemplate their own situation, as hopeless as it may seem at the moment, they need to also see God in heaven working out all things to the completion of his will. All opposition to his rule and all opposition to the establishing of his kingdom in the world are in vain and will be overcome. Now, it is not uncommon to hear Christians say when something really terrible happens, take heart, God is still on his throne. You ever heard that? Hear it? Probably have said it. Personally, um, I'll admit that I thought the phrase sounded a little trite, cheap, um, overplayed at times. But, you know, it is nonetheless very, very true. And what it means, you know, that God is still on his throne is an appropriate thing to be encouraged by. The one in charge is still in charge, and he is exactly the one we want to have in charge. On earth, we have powers and authorities that challenge God's role and even masquerade as the ultimate power of all things. You know, even boasting, at least implicitly, a sense of omnipotence and divinity. That's the attitude, and this was certainly true of Rome. And it has been true of most nations in the history of the world, including in many respects our own. But there is a throne above all of these. And from that throne, all the movers and shakers of the world, from the nations themselves to powerful corporations, to the media, the entertainment industry, the universities, and all the rest, will be judged, judged justly in God's righteousness. The so-called thrones of this world uh, you know, all the, all the various centers of power that control uh, the affairs of the populations, you know, they're like toy models made of Play-Doh in comparison to the one true throne above. Thus, thus, John in his vision is taken up into heaven to see this for himself, to see and appreciate that God's throne is really the ultimate reality. And having witnessed it, the surety of God's sovereignty, he can then see how it must come to be acknowledged on earth. Whatever God on his throne declares to be true is true. Whatever he says will happen, will happen. Now, what is described in the verses that follow is intended to invoke a sense of intense reverence and awe. This is no ordinary throne. The place from which God rules is no ordinary place. The scene is taken as a whole as both 
majestic and terrifying. John was all struck by it, and it follows that those who read his account of it should be as well. So, verses 3 and 4. The one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 el thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders, and they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. So stop here for a moment. Here and in the verses that follow, it's probably, I would say, best not to go out of the way to force symbolism that at least isn't obvious. For instance, all the different colors of the rainbow don't represent all the nations from which God rules over. Or that jasper, which is often green, the color of life, symbolizes God as the giver of life. I don't think that's the intent. And I think this is a stuff, this is where we can get off track and eventually end up in the weird. John's account here is simply meant to impart a sense of God's glory, majesty, and splendor. In a way, we are invited to visualize what he sees in his vision and to imagine what we might think and even feel upon seeing it firsthand ourselves. And the same applies to the 24 elders. Most likely, they are a unique heavenly, they are some unique order of heavenly beings some sort of a exalted angelic um, group or order who reign with God. They wear crowns and share his purity and holiness. They are dressed in white. The fact that their thrones, all 24 of them, encircle God's throne suggests that we have something here like a heavenly council. Again, we are invited to visualize this. And along with reigning as kings, they also appear to function in some sort of a priestly role as well, offering up worship to God, and indeed, we see this to be the case many times in Revelation, later in this chapter, twice in the next chapter, and again in chapter 7, 11, and also in 19, we see them worshiping the one who sits on the throne. In chapter 5, we read that each of these 24 elders holds two things, a harp, which obviously represents worship, and they hold a golden bowl of incense, which we are told are the prayers of the saints. But again, all of this contributes to the reverence, the majesty, the dignity, and the weight of honor of the one they encircle. For he is the subject, not them, but he, the one who sits on the throne. And even as, even as great cosmic rulers, where each one might reign over a portion of the cosmos, either seen or unseen, they are nonetheless rulers who serve another. Rulers who worship another. Now for verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. What an image. And this, of course, represents the manifestation of God in his power and is intended to portray a sense of trepidation, fear, terror, even danger. It contributes to the ongoing picture here of God's transcendence, that he is far above all other creatures in power, authority, glory, and righteousness. The scene would remind the reader of what happened on Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, when God descended in fire and smoke accompanied by thunder and lightning. Everyone was so terrified that they begged God to stop. Certainly now, to say this, God is our Heavenly Father, and we enjoy a close relationship with him. But in chapter 4, the focus, by design, is on his incomparable authority and power. The reader is faced with the sober reminder that God is not tame or domesticated. 
He is alarming and dangerous. He is, as we read in the Psalms, a terrifying and frightening storm. His throne is not to be taken lightly. And this particular image actually sets the tone for what will come in chapter 5. Hopefully you'll remember some of this. When the invitation is given to come and take the scroll from God's right hand. As you'll remember, no one dares to. No one is worthy to approach him. The great throne is intimidating. It's unapproachable. It's forbidden. All the universe cowers back in fear and remains silent and still. Only the lamb comes forward. Only the lamb can come forward. The flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder which convey, which convey this terrifying power of God will, will come up again in the book many times. In 8.5, they accompany the breaking of the seventh seal. In 11, chapter 11, they accompany the blowing of the seventh trumpet. And in chapter 16, as you might guess, they accompany the pouring out of the seventh bowl of wrath. So all those passages deal with God's judgment visiting the earth with both unspeakable terror and indescribable power. And again, the tone that is set, danger and dread and trepidation, it is, an, it is intended. The vision continues in the second part of verse 5, going back now to chapter 4. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God, uh, we are told. Also, before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. So we do not know what these seven spirits of God are. Scholars are divided on this. Some say that they are yet another exalted angelic order who serve God in a unique way. We just don't have much information. Others claim that this is symbolic language for the Holy Spirit and could be translated the sevenfold spirit. But whatever the case, the description, again, it just further adds to the mystery and the majesty of the one on the throne. As does the floor. <laughs> Even the floor, whatever it is, this thing that looks like a sea of glass, clear as crystal, it serves a purpose. I mean, if nothing else, it contributes to the visual phenomenon of this sacred place reflecting and even magnifying the effects of both the halo of radiant light, the rainbow above the throne, and also these flashes of lightning that we read about. This colorful and awesome splendor would further heighten this sense of transcendence and majesty. It is a powerful picture. And as readers, we are invited to just visualize it, to take it in and to be awestruck by it, because it really is a powerful picture. Now, when I read through this chapter, when I read through this chapter, um, what often comes to mind, you're going to laugh at this, I know, I'm just, I'm prepared to have you laugh at me. What often comes to mind is the first time I watched The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Go ahead, get out of your system. This was 60 years ago. It was on a small black and white television. But I remember distinctly as a young child being awestruck when Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and the Lion and Toto first appeared before the wizard, right? Has anyone not seen this movie? <laughs> After walking down this seemingly mile-long intimidating hallway, the smoke and flashing lights and thunderous voice coming from this projected image of the wizard uh, was, again, as a young child, just amazing and terrifying. It was mysterious and yet exciting. It drew me in and it made me shudder. Now, anyone under 60 years old won't have a clue about what I'm talking about here, but I remember it. 
And when I read chapter 4, these, you know, these same feelings that I had as a child of amazement and mystery and awe, they just flare up again, right? Now, a lot of you are looking at me like none of that was actually helpful, but <laughs> now for verses 7 and 8. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had the face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings, even under their wings. Uh, so we have again what appears to be yet another order of celestial beings. We just have four of them. They're very unique. They're very, very strange. They are also referred to in Isaiah 6 and in in Ezekiel 1, in the visions of the throne room there. Endless efforts have been made over the centuries in trying to explain these bizarre and peculiar creatures. Many of these efforts, I believe, just get too bogged down in all the symbolism, and they end up, in my mind, missing the whole point. Given that the objective of this chapter is to portray a picture of God that strikes fear and awe in the heart of the reader, it seems best to recognize them as yet just another contribution to this. The fact that they form the inner circle around the throne suggests that they serve as something like the immediate guardians of it. And again, conveying this picture of just how off limits the throne is and even how terrifying the whole environment there is. I mean, would you try to push through one of these hideous looking things out of your way? I mean, a thousand times more intimidating than those flying monkeys in the Wizard of Oz, right? The fact that they are covered with eyes speaks to their alertness and knowledge. Nothing escapes their notice. They, like everything else here, contributes to this transcendence and grandeur and otherness of the one who sits on the throne. More magnificent than who they are is what they say, as we continue to read in verse 8. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Two things here are worth mentioning. First, this worship is continuous. It's day and night. They never stop. They are so overwhelmed by the truths they are proclaiming that they simply cannot stop. Secondly, the worship rendered unto God is not meaningless babble here, nor does it consist of subjective feelings. They're not saying over and over and over, I love you, or I praise you, or I find joy in worshiping you, and the like. You know, the sort of stuff that makes up 80% of modern-day praise choruses. Rather, the worship is content-based. It draws upon objective truths. And indeed, God is glorified when true things about him are recognized and appreciated. Here in verse 8, the one who sits on the throne is worshipped for three things that are true about him. Three things in particular. He is holy, he is powerful, he is eternal. God's holiness naturally leads to his omnipotence, which naturally leads to his eternality. Again, each of these contributes to, his, to this picture here of his transcendence and otherness. To acknowledge God as holy is to declare his complete separateness from all other created beings as does his omnipotence and his eternal nature. He is the eternal God who unites past, present, and future in himself. He is sovereign in what happened long ago, is what is happening now, and what will happen in the future. And to this worship, 
The 24 elders respond to this worship of the four living creatures. The 24 elders in verse 9 respond to this. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and power and honor, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Several things here. What we seem to have is like a responsive form of worship where these two different orders of heavenly beings take turns, if you will. The four living creatures render praise to God for the fact that he is holy, powerful, and eternal. To which the 24 elders respond by praising God for the fact that he created all things. As creator, God alone has ultimate power over everything. As creator, to whom all creatures owe their very being, he alone is to be worshipped. So, the four living creatures celebrate who he is, the 24 elders celebrate what he has done. Furthermore, the worship of the elders is accompanied by this vivid display we see here of humility and submission. This is just fascinating to read this. You know, as they, along with falling prostrate, prostrate before God, also remove their own crowns and lay them before God's throne. So, again, visualize this. The whole thing is astounding. It is a display of absolute allegiance and surrender. Their authority to reign as kings, their dignity and majesty as divine royalties, all of this by their own free will is presented to the almighty God in utter submission. It is an acknowledgement that he alone is worthy of worship, allegiance, devotion, and service. These celestial beings, the four living creatures and 24 elders, are among all the creatures of the universe, seen and unseen, the closest to the throne. And therefore, they have an advantage when it comes to the knowledge of God. And from what we see here, we are left to conclude that having a true knowledge of God is inseparable from that of worshiping him. The one inspires the other. How can one not worship God when comprehending the reality of who he really is? All of this provides a proper climax to the magnificent scene here in chapter 4, and it sets the stage for what happens next in chapter 5. Now, it is worth noting here before we move on that in these two chapters, which again should be seen as one unit, 4 and 5, we see a total of five hymns of praise. The object of worship with the first two here in chapter 4 is, of course, the one who sits on the throne. The object of worship with the next two in chapter 5 is the lamb who was slain. And with the last one, the fifth hymn of praise at the end of chapter 5, both the one who sits on the throne and the lamb who was slain are worshipped together. So again, the throne on which God sits is one of the central symbols of this whole book. And it is established here in chapter 5. It represents his seat of authority, his universal power. And it represents his unique place in the universe. And from that throne, he will judge the unrighteous. And because he is holy, as the four living creatures have declared in their worship, his judgments are necessary. And his judgments, because he is holy, are righteous and true. They are perfectly just. 
which needs to be remembered when reading all of the chapters that follow about those judgments. This description, the one who sits on the throne, appears frequently in the rest of the book. We won't take time to look them all up. I would just encourage you to take note of this uh, when reading the book on your own. Hint, hint. <laughs> all right, the last description or designation of God that we want to look at this morning, number five, naturally follows the previous four. But first, I want to lead into it by just making sure that we are all following how everything flows here. What we just read in chapter 4 is foundational for what comes later for the rest of the, what follows in the rest of Revelation. The visions of judgments on the world and on the powers of evil result from the fact that the one who sits on the throne over the entire universe is altogether powerful and altogether holy. As all holy, he is compelled to judge those who do evil. As all powerful, he is able to do so. The holiness and righteousness of God in chapter 4 require both the condemnation of the unrighteous and the destruction of the powers of evil that contest God's rule and rebel against it. Thus, all the judgments from the opening of the seven seals and all the judgments from the sounding of the seven trumpets and all the judgments from the pouring out of the seven bowls of wrath. Again, God's holiness, a truth clearly asserted in chapter 4, is manifested in all of these judgments that make up the bulk of the book. And so, here in Revelation, God is, number 5, the one whose judgments are true and just. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is, who was, and is to come. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is the one who sits on the throne. And he is the one whose judgments are true and just. We find this description explicitly stated in 16.7, 19.2, 15.3, but it is, of course, implied throughout the whole book. Because God is holy, as heaven has proclaimed, evil must encounter the full weight of his disapproval of evil. It must be punished. His wrath must be satisfied. And this is not just something that we must accept, but something that we are to approve of and give our amen to, even something that warrants our worship of God, as seen in chapter 19. You know, it is one thing to agree with God in theory about his judgments of the unrighteous, it's another thing to agree with him about that in real life. And this can get quite weighty. And so my plan here is to come back and deal with this the next time. Most of Revelation, as we know, is a picture of God's wrath in action. And I believe the book offers some useful insights about this very difficult subject and how we should think about it and even process it emotionally. And so we'll talk about that. And I hope next time to look at the subject of worship as well. Uh, there is a lot of worship going on in Revelation, and there are some things that we can learn about that from the book as well. And ironically, the fact that God is just and his wrath is demonstrated and the fact that he is worthy of worship, those are not two completely different things. They actually come together in the book of Revelation. So that'll be the plan in two weeks. Next week, we have a guest speaker scheduled. We have Kurt Smith. You may remember him from the Indiana Family Institute. 
Uh, this is one of the ministries that we financially support monthly. It's been a number of years since we've heard from him, and I'm sure that he'll have a lot to um, tell us about. We'll look forward to that. So one more thing before we close. I just want to kind of clarify something. I didn't know exactly where to fit this in, but here's the spot. I want to clarify something about God's transcendence so that there's no confusion about this. Transcendence refers to the fact that God is totally and absolute distinct from his creation, and therefore from all creatures, including humans. It does not mean, however, that he is distant from them. This is very important. In fact, the transcendent God, precisely because he is not a finite being among other finite beings, is able to be present to all, even closer to them than they are to themselves. One of the many remarkable things about the new creation as described in, in the final chapters is that God makes his home with those who have been redeemed. He actually makes his home with them. The one who is distinct and separate will dwell with us. His throne will be in the city, we are told. And further, we are told, he will enjoy a close father-son relationship with us. I mean, this is really neat, right? So upon, those uplifting, upon that uplifting, encouraging thought, let's stand. And I will close with these words from Revelation, which has become kind of my standard benediction here because he just is so rich. From chapter 1, grace and peace to you, to all of you, from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. And ever. Amen. Upon those words you are dismissed. Go in Christ's name. Enjoy each other and serve each other in love.